Hello, I'm Professor Alex Bovey, Dean and Deputy Director of the Courtauld Institute of Art. You're listening to the fourth episode in our new podcast series, Courtauld Cast. The Courtauld is the UK's smallest specialist university dedicated to teaching and research in art history, conservation and curating. It's also an art gallery with a remarkable collection of paintings, sculptures and some of the world's most important works of art. The spark which ignited this series has been a major renovation of the Courtauld Gallery. For the past three years, we've been completely transforming the space to bring out the best in our collection and make it truly accessible. I hope after listening to this podcast, you'll pay us a visit and enjoy the art up close. This episode of Courtauld Cast is all about the objects in the collection. And I'll be speaking with Alexandra Gerstein, who takes care of our decorative arts and sculpture collection. Why don't we make this object speak a bit? And I always thought it would be nice to do an exhibition about the sounds that objects make. And we'll be taking a tour of my favourite room at the Courtauld to look at some of the objects there. You have to imagine these objects being used as a support for meditation and contemplation and prayer in the 13th and 14th centuries. We'll also hear the sounds of modern makers demonstrating some of the skills required to make the objects in our collection. First up, we're going to take a look at a pair of beautiful objects, which until recently were languishing in the Courtauld stores. Two exquisitely decorated glass beakers. These two beakers, they were made between 1720 and 1740 in Bohemia, which is today's Czech Republic. I think what was so interesting for me was only seeing them on a screen first. So then when I did see them in real life, they were much smaller and delicate and they had this beautiful like weight when you actually like finally touch them. They have this faceted edge all the way around. They're about three inches. It's two pieces of glass in a cylinder, that makes sense, and gold is sandwiched between them. And it's got this hunting scene going all around. You've got cut-off trees, you've got full trees sprouting out. A man on horseback running to catch the hare. Dogs running. They were given as exclusive gifts, um, but they would have also possibly been used. And at that time in Bohemia, they did really, really like to drink. In those specific type of glasses, it would have possibly been plum or pear brandy that they were actually used for. That's Sophie Nicole Dodds talking about the two glass beakers she chose to focus on as part of her internship here at the Courtauld. I studied my master's at Goldsmiths. It was called Design Expanded Practice. And they have different people coming in to explain different kind of internships or different opportunities. And one of those opportunities was the Illuminating Objects internship at the Courtauld. I decided to apply and, yeah, just got completely lost in it. Sophie was asked to pick an object from the collection and create a display that would illuminate the object's beauty as well as tell its story. And these two bohemian beakers were an excellent choice. Not only do they present this lively scene of a stag hunt, but they also tell a story of incredible craftsmanship. 
The hunting scene is depicted in finely worked gold foil, sandwiched between the two layers of glass that form the cup. Having tried my hand at gilding, I can tell you that it is fiendishly difficult, and I can't begin to imagine the patience and expertise required to create these objects. It brought together so many different kind of craftsmen, mold makers, glass blowers. It's a very, very complicated technique of how to kind of secure the two glasses together while scratching on this kind of very delicate glass gold technique. But you can still see all this like different fragmented gold drawings within it, but they all get a bit blurred. And I think that makes the gold become quite magical rather than it just being this like static image. Working with our gallery technician, Matthew Thompson, Sophie got to know the beakers. We held them up to the light and kind of started spinning them around and they just kind of came alive to us. First we joked you'd maybe find them in a charity shop and then they just kind of became more and more beautiful. The glasses are smallish tumblers and if you didn't know how they were made, you might not take a second glance at them. But when someone carefully explains, there are two glasses that are blown and then carefully sanded down so that one fits into the other. And then the gilded design applied to the outer face of the smaller of the cups and then they're sandwiched together. It just really blows your mind, the amount of skill and care that goes into them. And the other really clever thing is that what would bring them to life is pouring a dark liquid, like say wine, in them so that the golden design is kind of legible in contrast to your claret or whatever you're drinking. Sophie's internship was part of our long-running Illuminating Objects program, which brings students from a range of disciplines and institutions to the Courtauld to interpret and display works in our decorative arts collections. I'll be taking a look at how Sophie chose to display these objects shortly. But first, I met up with Alexandra Gerstein, the gallery's curator of sculpture and decorative arts, to hear about how and why the Illuminating Objects project came about. Because we have a lot of objects in store that are not on display, it's not always because they're not beautiful or interesting or even important. It's often because they don't fit into the narrative of other objects that we display in paintings and sculpture. And the internship and program of display was set up to kind of bring these objects out, but to bring them out with a different perspective in mind and to connect with other colleges, other university departments. And other disciplines as well. Other disciplines. I think that's one of the things that is a really striking feature of the programme is that you've staged collaboration really between you and maybe some of your curatorial colleagues and, and students who are studying disciplines other than art and history. Yeah, we've worked with students in theology, students in psychotherapy and the arts, students in design history, the humanities, anthropology. It's a way of affirming how important the arts are generally for everyone and that it's not a closed world. And it's also just a way of showing visitors to the gallery that there is more to it than an art historian's sort of perspective, that you can get a lot from, for example, a beautiful frame that's made of all kinds of little hard stones and looking at it from a geologist's point of view. 
Our intern several years ago who came from Central St. Martins and was doing a master's in graphic design chose a jug from the collection, a 16th century French green glazed jug, which is known as a puzzle jug. What we didn't know about it, inside, between the pierced wall and the cylinder inside, there was a little clinking, clink, clink, clink noise. And the conservator said, well, there's no doubt what that is. It's a tiny little bit of clay. And our gallery technician and very talented artist as well, Matthew Thompson, and the intern together collaborated on this fantastic display. We made a film because we liked the way the light shone through the object, but at the same time we also thought, why don't we make this object speak a bit? So one of us held it and just ever so slightly turned it so that we could hear the clink clinks. I always thought oh, it would be nice to do a, an exhibition about the sounds that objects make. That would be so interesting. I also think smell is interesting. I'm a manuscript specialist, medieval manuscripts, and I swear to God I can smell the difference between a Greek manuscript and a Latin manuscript. When you work so closely with objects, there is a sonic and a, an olfactory Absolutely. dimension as well as, you know, and, and you're very lucky to be able to handle objects as well that for most of us are definitely behind, behind uh, glass. No, absolutely. There are such a breadth of sensorial experiences that, yes, sadly, when they're behind a glass, you just don't have. But what we do have, and with the Illuminating Objects Project, we kind of aim for it. Okay, how can we kind of best express this? How can we be a little bit more experimental with the object? It's display, right. but also maybe the accompanying videos or whatever we can make of it. So in fact, Sophie may not have said, but she and Matthew again made a, a little film. These beakers on a turntable, thinking about them as though they were very early cinema. With oh, amazing. Image. Yeah, yeah. What have you, as a curator, learned from the many collaborations that you've now had over a decade with students studying this dizzying variety of subjects that you've you know, brought into the gallery? Working with students who then engage me and I continue to do research with them. We've identified objects that actually are more important than we thought. That's pretty gratifying. It's not our world. These objects, they have all kinds of lives. And I think us art historians, we have a large set of questions that we bring to objects, but we can't always anticipate the kinds of things that will strike other people or, or seem problematic to people that don't have our kind of deep affiliation to our subject area. No, I think yeah. that that aspect of sort of what interests you about the object, currently we're working with two master's students in art psychotherapy at Roehampton University, and this is day two of their internship, and it is absolutely fascinating to hear them speak. They pick out all kinds of very different things from the objects, because for them, they're used in therapy. You know, they use objects uh, in therapy. Well, there can be something very therapeutic about looking at works of art, that's for sure. And I think that's what we're going to go do now. So we've come up the stairs and we're in a gallery that is full of 18th century European art. And this is where your illuminating objects, display mm -hmm. cases... It's a very, very beautiful display. Um, Sophie, maybe you can tell me what we're looking at. So we've got the two beakers. One is set further back and the second one is closer to us on its side with some velvet just like draping kind of pouring out of it. And so then you can also see to the bottom of the 
cup as well. We've also got a very thin bit of parchment paper, or old paper with a drawing on, and pencil. So in the case, there are the two cups, one on its side with a bit of velvet inside to show the contrasting feature, and the other standing up, and there's some books and, um, and some gilding materials. But there's also a drawing on a rectangle of old paper that Sophie's done that carefully transcribes the hunting scene on one of the cups so that you can see in one glance the uh, image that if you were holding the cup, you'd have to turn it around and around in your hand to see. And then we've got two books stacked on top of each other, which are from the special collections here. And then we have a gilding knife, some wrapped up bits of paper laid on top, and then again a gilding brush with some gold leaf kind of little scraps set next to it. Sophie told me how she came up with the concept for how to display these beakers. I kind of imagine the men running in, they were all very elated from their hunt, and pouring plum brandy very high up and you kind of see it all kind of glistening in the candlelight into the cups. They drink it. And then I like to think that the main owner of the glasses maybe saw something twinkling in them and just started getting fascinated by maybe how they were made, rifling through books, drinking more. Yeah, I like to think that they gave someone some joy. And also because I was working at home in the pandemic, it was also looking at my like work table space. And then when we kind of started thinking about, oh, maybe it can be displayed as this very effortless table that, you know, things are kind of strewn about the place, but placed in a delicate way. Each direction that you come in, you kind of get a different viewpoint and you can walk all the way around it, which kind of lets you be able to see different things that you wouldn't notice, like on one of the spines of the book. You've got gold leaf little hunting animals, because that one's a hunting book. And then this top book, it's made out of vellum, which again was kind of a graphic point, but we kind of thought it reflected the stretched out part of a deer. But the two colours, again, we just thought balanced really lovely, especially with the paper and then the gold leaf. And I think the glasses look really delicate as well, next to these kind of quite stark, beautiful books. With um, what may well be characteristic modesty, you haven't described the drawing Sorry. that is, uh, <laughs> is in this case as well. Well, you drew this drawing yeah. as a way yeah. of describing the subject matter on the glass. So can you yeah, say a little bit about the drawing? When I was with Matthew, the gallery technician, we were kind of looking at my work and kind of my practice and how I'd kind of start to understand or develop a design idea, and lots of it would stem through drawing. So I kind of started sketching things out. And because we kept reiterating the storytelling fact, I was like, well, if we stretched it out, would it be a storyboard? So I kind of just started drawing things like that out in fine liner pen, more as just trying to understand that whole overall image. It was also kind of difficult, where do you start the image if it's on a circular object? Where do I decide to start it? Do I start it from the huntsman? Do I start it from the horse? The kind of conceit, in a way, of, of Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, where he's talking about the figures on the vase being kind of trapped endlessly in a, in a hunt as you turn it around, you know. And with these little glasses, I think there's something very... Uh, compelling about that idea that as you hold it in your hand you can turn it around mm. and the 
deer is always escaping and the rider is always approaching. Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. That's um, also very astute because the trapped gold is the matter that's trapped in the glasses. And Sophie was really interested in the research in understanding the alchemical kind of process of glass making. We worked with the Science Museum on this internship during the pandemic. Illuminating Objects was partially shown in the Science Museum, and then this object was chosen with the curator from the Science Museum, but shown here. And alchemy and chemistry were a really important aspect of the research because this small amount of gold is transformed by the glass and kind of amplified in that it sort of, it isn't gold, it's a gold foil, it's a very tiny amount. And there was a sense that through the glass process you could sort of make something else, make something more precious. It is an absolutely infinitesimally tiny quantity of gold. Mm. But the way that it's displayed and through the glass, you can see it kind of twice front and back. So it has the kind of incredible impact, doesn't it? The Illuminating Objects internship is just one element of Alexandra's job as the decorative arts and sculpture curator. I wanted to ask her more generally what it's like to look after such a varied collection of objects for the Courtauld. The Illuminating Objects program grew out of the collection that I'm responsible for which is very broad-ranging and mainly goes from medieval Europe and medieval Islam to early 20th century Britain. And it spans all kinds of media and materials from ivories, carved ivories to painted ivories to silversmith work and other metalwork to furniture. I mean, arguably it's the most diverse part of our collection in terms of cultural groups, chronologies, materials. It is extremely varied. I often work with other people and other specialists. My own specialism is in 19th century and early 20th century sculpture and architecture. So whilst that can take me some points, it doesn't mean that I ever become an absolute expert or scholar of Islamic metalwork, of which we have a very important small group of objects. And it just means that you end up collaborating with peers, with scholars, with conservators, with other curators, with art historians in the faculty of the Courtauld, and it's just a fantastic job. Can you say something about how you've gone about bringing the decorative arts and sculptural works to the foreground. Yeah, I think that integrating these works in as many rooms as possible so they could be seen with paintings that were made roughly at the same time so that you can see the kinds of context that people at the time would have had around them was a really key idea. And also trying to have no barrier between the visitor and the object and letting the visitor get as close as possible to the object is a way of elevating the object Lighting and securing and displaying three-dimensional objects. It's such a joy when you get it right, but it takes so many people, and it takes a very long time. After talking about the collections with Alexandra, I was keen to visit them with her, so we ventured into the Ruddock family medieval and early Renaissance gallery, my favorite room at the Courtauld. I'm a medievalist, and this is the room that I find the most exciting, and also the one that I use most often as my classroom. One of the things that I want to talk to you about, Sasha, is the way that all of the works of art here, including the paintings, are really displayed 
as objects. And I, I think by that I mean that you can often see the backs or the paintings in standalone cases so that you can walk around them. As a decorative arts and sculpture person, I'm sure you have thoughts about this. Well spotted, Alex. <laughs> With my colleague Karen Serre, the curator of paintings, we wanted to give the visitor a sense of how these objects would have maybe not been used, but their presence, you know, the, the presence, the actual spatial presence that they have and how they were objects of devotion. And there also is a lot of gold in this room, gold leaf that has been laid over plaster so that it's three-dimensional or worked with tools so that it kind of glitters. So in the Middle Ages would have been either illuminated by candlelight or daylight shining through glass. And that kind of low flicker that you get across the surface is, I think, really important and beautiful in here. Can I show you a detail that I find absolutely both beautiful and just basically really moving in a um, triptych, an ivory triptych that I love very much? It shows Virgin Mary and Child. Uh, that's a central panel. I would say carved in the round on a background. On either side of Mary, who's holding baby Jesus, you have scenes from the birth of Christ and the kings adoring. And these are on panels on either side that are hinged to the central one and they close. You have to imagine these objects being opened, being used as a support for meditation and contemplation and prayer in the 13th and 14th centuries, coming out of incredible workshops in Paris and being made for a very high-end market. What I want to say about this one is Mary would have been holding something. We know she was holding something because there's a little stub of something in her right hand. But actually that something has disappeared, it's not there. We'd imagine it would have been a lily. That's a sort of classic attribute of hers. So what you see behind her right shoulder is a painted and gilt lily. Not only is it replacing the lost bit of thinly carved ivory that would have fallen off, but it's also masking a crack in the ivory. So yeah. I love the sense that many generations have um, loved this object. The diptych to the right of it is a really beautiful diptych. It's just a, a really wonderful and moving image. On one side you have, again, virgin and child, and on the other side the crucified Christ. And when the diptych is opened at a certain angle, which is the angle we've opted for, it does look like she is looking across the space between her panel and the other panel at her son, crucified son. And there's something very moving about that and clearly intentional. So it's just the life of these objects is something I find really fascinating. One of the things that's interesting is they're very book-like. Yeah, they look like books. But instead of having a manuscript that has, you know, 300 leaves or something, and you can turn the page and there's a kind of rich program, here, your object of devotion gives you a very stable, fixed program. But one that, especially in the case of this amazing diptych with three registers that are densely crowded, all three, with scenes that are really densely figured from the nativity of the Virgin and the birth of Christ all the way through to Christ's ascension after the crucifixion. I mean, it's very rich storytelling, and you kind of imagine like a person might look at this every day as part of their devotional routine. I wonder what thoughts do you think, what insights do you have, what prayers do you say with something like this in your hands? And are you being helped by a kind of chaplain who's sort of guiding the meditation? And are you sort of is in a private chapel where there's a passage, um, you know, from the Bible that kind of allows you to enter 
in a way, it's a little bit like I was going to say, like a comic strip, where it would have allowed the person, you think, to enter the, the sort of mind frame of, you know, way back in the past. These figures, they're contemporary in their dress. They've got a beautiful Gothic ornament. They're stories from the past, but sort of reframed for the present. On the other side of the case, we have smaller ivories, much, much smaller. They're kind of credit card size and thin as well. It is a, a writing tablet. And if we had been able to show the back, you would have seen that the back is recessed and flat. So you could put your wax in it, and then you could take your stylus, your pen, and you can write yourself notes and things. And then you can have a little stylus and you can write things, you know, like rude messages, shopping lists, little prayers, whatever. And then when you don't need them anymore, you just kind of rub them out and smooth the wax down again. These were made in the 13th century, 14th century. I mean, paper exists in Europe, but it's very, very expensive. And the other main writing surface is parchment. So the idea that you could have a kind of reusable writing surface just to jot little notes is really fascinating. So again, you have to think of something which would have been with the person. These objects talk about personal connection. That's quite fascinating. I think I'm right in saying, Sasha, that these objects include or are entirely made from elephant ivory. A couple of other species represented, maybe walrus or ox or, you know, horn. So one of the things that's quite interesting is the natural history of these objects and then also the trade history. And I think for us, the trade in the bodily products of the elephant is especially uncomfortable. I wonder if that's something that you've, you know, kind of had to think about in making this display is, you know, these are probably African elephant tusks that were a really important part of the trade of artist materials. They often followed the same trade routes as gold did from West Africa in all the writing that we've done in the gallery, it's just all new for the reopening of the gallery this year, we addressed obviously the kind of problematic and uncomfortable and, and unethical nature of trading in ivory today. But we did it, we hope sensitively, we've done it simply by saying, well, ivory was viewed as a highly precious and almost kind of on a spiritual level, something about the lustrous purity of it that was important to artists and patrons and religious people at the time. When I'm teaching this material, it's an increasingly kind of interesting and potent thing to think about how medieval European people thought about and understood the elephant as a species and where they thought they came from. And, and I think for us as art historians, thinking about the trade in artist materials and the humans and the animals and the precious materials and their kind of incredible network that, you know, across continents that they engender. So, Sasha, in this gallery, the other really striking thing about it is that you and your colleagues have incorporated material that is Western European, North and South of the Alps, and then also the most extraordinary display of Islamic metalwork. And I wonder if you can say a little bit about how you've decided to bring these into the gallery, and maybe also how they speak to the other objects here? Yeah, well, you mentioned the gold and the flickering, the quality of light flickering on the gold and gilt frames. And here you have vessels, they're mostly vessels, made of brass, so not a very fancy or noble material, but inlaid with 
silver and exceptionally on really only one object in this case and very few objects in the world inlaid with gold. More important than that was actually the labor and technique involved in them. Well, because I was yeah. say, there's something kind of alchemical almost about taking materials that are inherently precious but then through craftsmanship and skill transforming them into things that are even more valuable than the materials from which they're made, which you could say is true of the paintings and the ivories and also these metalwork objects. No, I think it's very striking when you look at these, especially the really, really skillful ones. And we have here an object known as the Courtauld bag. It was an object that was made for a ruling woman of the descendants of Genghis Khan, the civilization known as the Ilkhanids, who ruled over parts of Iran. And this was made in northern Iraq in a technique that was exported from Mosul in northern Iraq that must have been really admired by these new sort of masters of that land, of Iran, by the Ilkhanids. When you look at really, really closely, there's something about the just the technical virtuosity, the skill... It's one of the masterpieces in that whole collection. It's a unique object. There is no other object like it. It has such an incredible story. We know it's an incredible story because it's an object which on the lid has a scene that shows a banquet. In that banquet, there's two figures in the center and they're sitting on a double throne. And one is a man and one is a woman. And each of them have retinues of staff on either side. And they're bringing all kinds of wonderful things to them. They're playing music. They're bringing all kinds of vessels and cups and drinks and libations and, and mare's milk, which apparently made you a little bit drunk. And then also on her side, there is a man carrying a bag, which we think this is the bag that he would have been carrying. How amazing, the self-referentiality of it. Yeah. And from that bag, he is giving her a mirror. And because her face, the inlay has actually fallen off of her face, and because of the way this has been drawn, the mirror has an image of the face. So we have her face in the mirror that has come out of this bag, and then we have a little hanky, and he's holding the bag in a way that we know from manuscripts of the period of the 14th century is how attendants to ruling women who were at this time in this place very powerful because actually the line descended from them we know that that's how these bags were carried at important ceremonies it is really beautiful it really sets the bar high for a desirable handbag We've heard a lot about the skill that goes into crafting objects like those that Alexandra and Sophie have described. So I thought I'd end this episode, and indeed this first series of Courtauld Cast, with a little montage of sounds of modern craftspeople at work. A stone carver, a building conservator, a screen printer, and finally a contemporary jeweler. Controlled breaking of the stone with a chisel that you see. This tool is called a kind of pitcher, which is sort of blunt. You can take off, oh, you can take off quite big bits of stone with this tool. These recordings were made by the sound artist Julie Rose Bauer at an event called Material Witness, which we held at the Art Workers Guild in February 2022. What you want to do is use natural coloration like brick and stone dust and add the most minimum amount of pigments because pigments are so are so small that they tend to move out. When you're doing a mortar repair like that, you've got to keep it wet, damp, for a long time, you know. So this is hydraulic line. 
These are various stone powders. So I'm just going to do like a geometric design. And I'm just going to start by drawing around some shapes. I have areas of shading that I can create by using mark making and cross hatching. When I'm pushing the squeegee down, it's sort of cupping the squeegee as it goes and the material underneath, so you get a really consistent print. This is a necklace based on the mussel shell I've made of dyed anodized aluminium. Each pod contains a pearl which is loose inside but trapped so it won't fall out. So anodizing is an electrolytical process and it creates a layer on the surface of the metal of colorless but very stable oxide and it's porous, so it absorbs certain dye stuffs. So this is actually digitally printed as a sheet of pattern and texture in as, you know, whatever colors I like. And then the pieces are cut out by hand as discs. They're rolled to stretch and distort forms and to create the texture. And then they're folded, domed, and folded against this, the line um, to create the kind of muscle-like form. So I've drawn a disc onto a piece of anodized aluminium sheet and I'm going to cut it out using a piercing saw which is a very fine blade um, with a serrated edge. Now I'm going to file it. It's wonderful to hear beautiful new objects being made with old techniques like stone carving but also modern techniques like digital screen printing. I'm a big believer that in making things ourselves, we're better able to understand the makers who came before us. I think this is integral to the study of art history. In my spare time, I love to draw, and I found that through my own practice, I've better understood the works of art in our collection. Along with looking and reading and all the other tools that art historians use to understand works of art, making is a vital route to understanding. Thank you to all my guests. We hope that you enjoyed listening to the first series of Courtauld Cast. Courtauld Cast is produced by Novel for the Courtauld Institute of Art and generously supported by Bloomberg Philanthropies. With thanks to our producers, Harry Cook and Claire Crofton, the series sound engineer, Rob Spate, sound artist, Julie Rose Bauer, and executive producer, Joe Wheeler. And special thanks to my Courtauld Research Forum colleagues, Leila Bumbra and Grace Williams for making this series happen. If you enjoyed this episode, please share and follow us on socials at Courtauld on Instagram and at The Courtauld on Twitter. Mm-hmm.